Well, young people, you are not dismissed. You are joining us today, as you know. Um, We will try to get my wits about me, figure out who I am and what we're doing. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn. Actually, before you turn, I don't want to show all my cards. Think about the purpose of the church. We want to think broadly and basically to review uh, or hopefully do what I, what I would expect is a little more review and think about foundationals. Uh, I have, uh, year, years ago I used to do coaching with soccer and I am not a big sports fan. I don't follow all the games that go on these days. But uh, from what I understand, any good coach emphasizes the fundamentals. If you don't know the fundamentals, you won't learn to play as a team. You won't win the game. And even if you lose and don't play right, it's, it's, a, it's a double loss. Carrying that illustration over to the church. How are we going to be the church if we don't understand what it is and how it operates, how it functions? I remember the first church I pastored as the sole Bible teacher. I felt like it was appropriate for me as a young pastor uh, taking on a, uh, a new church. Uh, we decided to go to the pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy and Titus to look at what the church is and how it operates. Now Jesus predicted the establishment of the church, which should be victorious over all foes. Back in Matthew 16 and verse 18, he predicts the church before the church is even born. Matthew 16 comes before Acts chapter 2, the birthday of the church. And so he predicts its establishment. He predicts its ultimate victory and expanse and growth. He talks about uh, how that in the in his kingdom, it's going to his kingdom's going to grow like a like a mustard seed. Uh, even as leaven, it's going to have it's going to permeate. It's going to accomplish his kingdom's going to accomplish its purpose even through the church. But the church in particular would consist of all believers which would become his body. So, if you join me in Ephesians chapter 1, this church which would become his body, what is it? If somebody, you, say you're talking with a neighbor or a coworker and you're trying to explain to them the church, and they said, you know, in five minutes, tell me what, what this thing is. Would you be able to, in a succinct way, without grasping for straws and being overly verbose, be able to tell them? I think that if we were to try to emphasize the fundamentals and very clearly define the church, I think we can succinctly and with all biblical accuracy say so in three statements. Three elements. Three functions, if you will, of how the church 
operates. I, I ask you to join me in Ephesians 1. This is just one, one of many passages. In Ephesians 1, Paul is emphasizing the gospel, the glory of the gospel, the glory of redemption in Christ. Uh, any English teacher or grammarian would be stymied by his run-on sentence, you know, because he's just, he's breaking out in doxology with how great and grand, how wide and how deep the gospel of God's grace is. And after he gets done talking about it, he, the, the chapter ends with these two verses. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, the Lord Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I remember in uh, a an experience in a church that was in the midst of blowing up because a bunch of unbelievers were confronted with the gospel and uh, what Jesus demands of his church and uh, their response when being confronted over the evils that were taking place in the church said, well, we want our church back. They See, they forgot who the head of the church was. A friend of mine just posted this week an article that I had read and reposted on Facebook about how their church began 10 years ago. And this uh, friend recounts uh, how God birthed another local assembly in the area. What is the church? How does it function? Threefold function. Number one. What is the church? It is a worshiping community. If you want to just jot that down in your mind or, or on a piece of paper for, for meditation later, as we say to the coworker or that neighbor who's asking us, what's the church? You simply say it's a worshiping community. Why does the church exist? It exists to exalt the Lord in simplest and most foundational terms. It is a worshiping community. Now, I think that worship is often misunderstood as just music. And I'm going to save this soapbox for a future discussion some other time. I don't want to get bogged down here. Though music is important, as, uh, and we use, it's a gift that God's given in expressing our worship, music is not worship. Uh, though music has a high and lofty place in the church. Luther remarked that the gift of language combined with the gift of song was given to man that he should proclaim the Word of God through music. He had such a high esteem for music that once he commented, next to theology, I give music the highest place of honor. So music definitely has an important place among the redeemed in the church. And it's got great potential, but it has much potential to bring great confusion and disorder to the church by substituting true worship of God for just 
we could we could launch off into so many uh, ways in which um, music is used for showmanship or uh, excessive emotionalism or any other uh, skewed view. Uh, so when we talk about the church being a worshiping community, we are not just saying that they sing, but that they exalt. We are exaltational in the church. Robert Sosi in The Church in God's Program defines worship as, as this. He says, to worship, uh, worship is central in the existence of the church. The words of the Apostle Paul that God has chosen and predestined sons unto Himself in Christ to the bra- praise of the glory of His grace. That's Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. That's why we launched off from Ephesians 1. He says, this suggests that the ultimate purpose of the church is to worship the one who called it into being, unquote. So, in trying to draw the theology from Scripture, in seeking to use God's Word to define what the church is and what worship is, in using Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6, uh, set your eyes upon this uh, as, as we use this as a definition. Just as He chose us, you know, again, I, I reminded you that in Ephesians 1, Paul is unpacking the glory of the gospel of redemption. And he says that what God did in the gospel is He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And then this purpose clause, for this express purpose that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So worship is central. When we try to tell people what we're involved in, we talk about going to church or being the church being part of the church, we must quickly get to our identity as being worshipers. So to worship God is to ascribe Him the supreme worth to which He alone is worthy. That is worship. The worthship of God. The essence of worship can be summed up as giving of oneself completely to God in the actions and attitudes of life. When you look at what was demanded even of Old Testament saints, Old Testament worshipers, what was Israel told? That you shall love the Lord your God with everything you are having and with your muchness. You're to ascribe worthiness to Him. How does the Bible end in worship in the book of Revelation? In Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, we've got a picture of the church in heaven 
We've got living creatures, 24 elders, crying out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What are they doing for eternity? What will we be doing for eternity? Ascribing worth to the Lamb who was slain for our salvation. In uh, chapter 19, the great multitude in heaven is saying, Alleluia. Worthy is the Lamb. As part of the redeemed, what do we do through the week? We worship as we spend time reading God's Word and, and praying. And so, private worship primes the pump for what we do on the Lord's Day in corporate worship. You know, an amazing passage that really structures our thinking of our identity as a worshiping community is in John chapter 4. John 4, you can probably recall Jesus is evangelizing this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman. And in John 4, mark down in your mind verses 19 through 24, pivotal text on true Christian worship. What Jesus instructs her on that day is that what we do today is patterned after what Old Testament worshipers did. Notice verse 19 of John 4. The woman said, uh, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. That's what we'd call a severe understatement. <laughs> you know, I perceive you're a prophet. She says, our, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. She's looking at history, right? This our, our, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. You know, so she comes, she, she says to Jesus that uh, seeks to give him a history lesson, and in essence, Jesus gives her a true history lesson. If, if what we do today is patterned after what the saints have always done in the Old Testament and yet been replaced, in the Old Testament worship, there was, there was a cult, what is called by theologians a cultus. Uh, it's a prescribed order of worship. We spent time in reading through the Old Testament that God was very particular, very specific, very detailed in how He should be approached, was He not? It wasn't to be trifled with. So there was a cultus. There was, second of all, a holy place. We looked at that in, uh, in one of the Psalms a few weeks ago. That there was a holy place, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. Mount Zion was the place of worship. So a holy place. Thirdly, there was a priesthood, a select group of individuals whose 
primary function was to offer worship to God. Matter of fact, a psalm that I've been meditating on the last few days, uh, Psalm 134, uh, the, the psalmist exhorts the professional worshipers to continue their worship. So there's a priesthood. Fourthly, in Old Testament worship, there was, there was a sacrificial system marking ex- an acceptable manner of worship. But if we today are to worship God in spirit and truth, Notice the flip-flop that's taken place from old to new. There once was a cultus, a prescribed order of worship. There is no more a cultus. There is an absence of a prescribed format for worship. Worship is somewhat in flux. Like we started, uh, what was it, January 1st or so, having uh, the Lord's table every other week. Because we're not violating Scripture. That if the Lord's table is central, a central celebration for the local church of redemption, there's nothing holding us to the first Sunday of the month kind of scheme like we've, like we've done. There's not only no cultus in, uh, in the New Covenant, but uh, there's no holy place. You look at the temple, it was eventually destroyed. And nothing replaces it. Matter of fact, Paul picks up on this picture and he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6 that our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit. What a, what a great picture. No cultus, no, no holy place. Matter of fact, the church is called a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices. That's the lingo Peter uses in 1 Peter 2.5. Church is called a spiritual house. No, no cultists, no holy place. Thirdly, no priesthood. In the, the third aspect of this flip-flop from old to new, no priesthood. Matter of fact, I just mentioned 1 Peter 2.5 in the language that Peter uses. And to believers, Peter says, you're a, what? Huh? A royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. You're not bringing your sacrifice to the priest to offer for you, you are offering a living sacrifice to the Lord as a holy priesthood. Fourth, we, we said that a fourth element of Old Testament worship was, was, uh, was the sacrificial system. No sacrificial system anymore. Sacrifices now are spiritual. Let's put memory verses that you memorized in Sunday school as a kid in their context now. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, what is the exhortation? What is his instruction? What is his command to the saints in the church? He says, present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice. So the dead sacrifices are replaced with living sacrifices. You know, our our hearts 
get engulfed when we read of the testimonies of martyrs, people that have died for Christ, and people will exclaim many times in humble sincerity, you know, I'll, I'd die for Jesus if He demands it. Well, he, we don't know if He's going to demand that of us. If, if our freedoms continue to be taken away, that might come someday. But we do know very clearly that He has called us to live for Him. And so we are to offer a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So we said the first element of how to define church. How does the church function? What is the church? The church is a community of worshipers. We exist to exalt, plain and simple. You don't get much more basic and foundational so don't let all the clutter of all this, uh, you know, there's always people writing about the church and uh, all this stuff. Don't, don't let more information clutter you from the simplicity and the foundational explanation of what is the church? We're a community of worshipers. That's what we do. We exalt. So we said uh, No more sacrificial system, but there are elements in our worship, are there not? You know, there's prayer, there's, there's praise, there's preaching, there's Scripture reading. Paul told Timothy, make sure you take heed to the public reading of Scripture, so we do that. We take offerings, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we have baptisms, we re- uh, so the primacy of the local church is to worship, is to exalt the Lord. I was reading from George Verwer, founder of Operation Mobilization. He says, I believe that the highest goal for every believer is not evangelism. I hope that sticks in your throat. As you hear that, and it's like, where's he going? We're all about evangelism, are we not? Verwer says that's not the highest goal. He said, I believe the highest goal for every believer is not evangelism, but worship. See that it becomes your number one priority. You will find that evangelism and every other Christian activity is easier in consequence. Give worship first place above intercessory prayer and simply enjoy God because He is God. Worship, Tozer comments, is the missing jewel of the evangelical church. If it is lacking in your life, you are probably experiencing a power shortage. As we seek to be the church, to do what God has called us to do, are we caught up in exaltation? Are we a community of worshipers? So what we do as the church, we worship. Second of all, we witness. I wouldn't use a quote like that very, uh, without very quickly on the heel saying, yes, our number one priority is worship. But following in a very, very close second is evangelism. We are not only a worshiping community, but we are a witnessing community. We exist not only to exalt, but we exist to evangelize. The church 
has a central mission to evangelize and reach the world with the gospel. To announce to every creature that Christ has made redemption, that redemption that Paul reflected on in Ephesians 1 that we read earlier. He has made redemption through His blood, and that by repentance and faith, each person can receive remission of sins and entrance into the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus says, with all authority, I am commissioning you to go to the ends of the world to preach the gospel to every creature. That's why as the the gospel that is introduced in the gospels, Right when Paul or or Luke picks up on writing a history of the gospel expanse, starts off in the very first chapter of historical narrative in Acts chapter 1, and he says that you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be what? Come on, you guys that have memorized Acts 1.8. You shall be what? Witnesses. He says, as a matter of fact, you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, and as the gospel continues to reach out, and as the church is born and grows and expands, it will extend to Judea and Samaria, and it's not going to stop there. It'll go to the uttermost parts of the globe. We got to, uh, I guess it wasn't in our... Uh, Scripture readings this week, I, I think I was thinking of uh, Sunday school, the, the kids are going through Acts right now, and I was talking with uh, one of the teachers this week or so, it was Acts chapter 8 where the gospel got to Samaria, and that was in fulfillment to the first chapter. That's why Paul, when he writes to the Romans in the first chapter of his epistle to them, says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the very power of God unto salvation. You know, people wanting to redefine the church. And, and what do we need to do? They get all worried and in a frenzy about what the church... Share the gospel. Proclaim the good news. Stop substituting the gospel with several peripheral issues. Worship God... And witness. You want to define the church in a succinct and biblically consistent and clear way? You tell your neighbor or that coworker what you're involved in as you're a worshiping community. You tell them, second of all, you are a witnessing community. That life is all about the gospel. They want to know about Newtown Bible Church. We're all about worship. We're all about witnessing. Third, as you seek to define what the church is, what the function is, I would suggest, based on so many New Testament passages, that we thirdly are a working community. A working community. Why is the church in the world? Why, the moment Jesus saved us, didn't He take us to heaven? We're going to be worshiping there for all of eternity, so we could could better do it there than we can do it here. 
because we'd be un- we'll be unhindered there from this body of flesh and sinfulness and all the distractions. He left us behind not only worshiping, but to be witnessing and thirdly to be working. The church exists to edify the believer. We exalt, we evangelize, we edify. You cannot do church in isolation. It is impossible. Somebody that seeks to honor Christ, to know Christ, to worship Christ, is disobeying the head of the church when they seek to exclude themselves from the local body. You will know from the passion in which I say that and the sobriety of my face in which I say that, that this is of great concern to me of the contemporary church. Each individual is to exercise their gift for the benefit of the common good. Jot down, either in your mind or on a piece of paper in front of you, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 1 Peter 4, 7. Two seventh verses of two different epistles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 7, we're told each one... Who's the each one? Every saint of God, every Christian, every part of the church. Each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You want to define what the church is as a community? It's a community of worshipers a community of witnessers, a community of workers. They are given a gift for the common good. Tracking that thought down from another author of inspired scripture in 1 Peter 4, 7. You know, Gene Getz, anybody ever read any of uh, Gene Getz's uh, books? Uh, bi- uh, I think his book on edification was Building Up One Another. He states in that on page 53, church is to become a mature organism through the process of edification so that it will become a dynamic witness to the world and so that it will honor and glorify God. Think about our study a couple weeks ago in John chapter 13. Jesus in the upper room, the night in which he was betrayed, gave one of the grandest object lessons on how the church functions. And he taught his disciples by way of object lesson when he got up from the table and he washed his disciples' feet. He served And then he says, he he wraps up uh, the illustration by saying that, uh, you understand what I've done? I've given you an example, and you're blessed if you do it. And towards the end of the chapter, verse number 34 and 5, he says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. It will be unquestionable. There will be no denying in the world that I've left you in, that you're my followers, if you have love one for another. If you're functioning and operating as the church, 
if you're serving and loving one another and edifying fellow believers. Join me in Colossians 1 for a moment. So many New Testament passages on the one another's on how we edify one another. But one of those is Colossians 1. Here we've got the, the purpose and plan and pain and power of ministry, Colossians 1. Notice the purpose that uh, Paul writes to the Colossians. In verse number 24, I read, Rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been made manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. So in verses 24 to 29 of Colossians 1, what is this purpose of working out in ministry, in the church, that we might present every man complete in Christ? Every man complete in Christ. That's our goal. God joined us up together through one faith, one baptism, one Lord in this community called the church that we might present every man complete in Christ. So that's the purpose. What about the plan? We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching. How do we present every man complete in Christ? How do we build each other up? How do we help each other in our spiritual growth and sanctification? Admonish, teach. Realize that in this process of doing church with each other, there is pain. He, he says, I, I labor, striving according to His power. Insert into the understanding of those words, labor and striving, one of the hardest days you ever worked in your life. When you, came, when you come to church like I did this morning, where you just, Lord, where's the Vicodin? My body just hurts. I work too hard. That is the picture Paul gives on his effort in the ministry. Working to the point of exhaustion. Can that characterize your service to the body, in the body, for Christ? That's the pain involved. And the power? According to His power, which mightily works within me. I'm trying to edit on the fly and breeze through some of this. 
How about we turn back to the Ephesians as we think of this last point of the church working together, edifying one another. Ephesians 4. Verses 7 through 16. I just mentioned about how that, what has God collected in the community called His church? Those who unite under one banner, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Yeah, so He looks at the church as a whole. We're all saved the same way, called to the same purpose, called to the same ministry, and in, this, in, a, in a particular local church, called to the same place. So he looks at it corporately, collectively, but then he starts in verses 7 and following, zeroing in on the individual, what, what the individuals bring to the table of ministry. He says in verse 7, but to each one, each, of the, each part of the whole, in other words, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Skipping down to verse 11, you look at some of the gifted ones he's given to his church to build the foundation. He gave some as apostles, gave some prophets, gave some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why did he give gifted ones to the church? Next verse. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. I think it's interesting that he, he did not uh, seek to launch off onto how that they will accomplish the work of the ministry. These gifted ones, they're just equippers. Release people for ministry is the emphasis here. Equip them, wind them up, let them go. Let them do what God's called them to do. You're just there for the equipping purpose so that the body might be built up. Where does it stop? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We haven't gotten that far yet, have we? He teaches the profitability of such an equipping ministry in verse 14. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. As you, as you equip people for ministry, there is stability, there is security as they grow and mature and are strengthened. They're not blown all over the place, all over the map. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. So as the church works, they end up looking like their head, the Lord Jesus, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, 
causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So, here in Ephesians 4, we've got the distribution of gifts. Who's it distributed to? Just think through the text with me. To each one. And then he gave some special equippers, gifted ones, to the body. So there's the distribution of gifts. Second of all, there's the destination of gifts. It is for the equipping. It is for the work of service. It is to the building up. And a proper, notice his terminology, a proper working of each part. When you pull something out of joint, what does the rest of your body do? It has to, has to compensate. You know, you, you, your hip hurts you, or you strain your ankle, and you start limping along. The rest of the body has to, has to compensate. And so the destination of gifts is that each part of the whole learn to be equipped for the work of service to the building up for the proper working of each individual part. Determine, Lord, what is my giftedness unto which you have saved me? How about the description of edification? He says in this description that there is the unity of the faith. We, we all believe the same thing. This is the, this is the reason why we have doctrinal statements to state what we believe God teaches in His Word. Doctrine, people say divides. No, doctrine unites. Believing the same thing. As we learn a greater understanding of the Son of God and become a mature man. And what is the design in it all? The design in this distribution, this destination, this description of edification. Its whole design is that we no longer be children, that we grow up. This is a mentality that John picks up on in his first epistle. That you go from being a, a, a child to a young man, old man, grow up. No longer children. Grow up in all aspects, he says there in verse 15. Grow up into Christ-likeness, our head, our living head, the Lord Jesus. So that we be building up ourselves in love. Building up of itself in love. Well, I'll skip the rest. Pray with me, would you? Father, we want to think biblically, accurately, clearly, foundationally about who we are as you identify us in your word. Who we are as the church. How we are to function. Give us greater and greater clarity on thinking out who we are, how we are to function in this local church, that we would recognize our supreme goal 
of being worshipers. We desire to have an exaltational ministry. To exalt God in everything that we do, say, and think about. When we sing, when we pray, when we preach, that it would be to arrobe you in splendor as you reveal yourself in Holy Scripture. We desire to be a community of worshipers. We desire as well that you would help us to be an effective and faithful community of witnesses, witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ, compelling all man everywhere to repent, to turn to Christ, to find mercy at your hand at the foot of the cross. And help us, O oh God, to be working until you come, to be edifying one another, to roll up our sleeves in biblical ministry with our giftedness, our giftedness that is not our own, but is to be ministered to the body for the glory of our great head, the Lord Jesus. We ask these things. Amen.